70 million displaced individuals around the world, of which 50% of them, roughly, uh, are children. Uh, so it is a massive factor of humanity at this point in time for us to come to terms with. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. As a regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board John Goodwin, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Lego Foundation. John and I first connected about three years ago when he first took over the foundation, and today it's an absolute pleasure to have you on board, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Perhaps we start a little bit with the Lego Foundation. I, most people have heard, and I imagine most people have played with Lego, mm -hmm. but the Lego Foundation maybe is not on everybody's radar, and it'd be great to know a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. So, as you say, uh, most people are familiar with the uh, Lego consumer products, the amazing Lego bricks that we have in front of us here today. Which I love. Um, which are fantastic manipulatives that enable people to express themselves, particularly children, in uh, whatever way. Uh, they see fit. Mm -hmm. And the Lego products were invented by a uh, family, uh, Kurt Christiansen family. Uh, they formed uh, the Lego company over 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that family still is uh, in the ownership capacity of uh, the Lego group. But back in the 80s, uh, they really uh, felt the desire to give back mm -hmm. so they donated uh, or they created the Lego Foundation back in the 80s and uh, they ultimately donated 25% of the Lego group to the foundation Right. so effectively 25% of the dividends that come out of those fantastic products from the, from the Lego group ultimately find their way into the Lego Foundation Right. Now, the Lego Foundation is a, a separate legal entity. Mm -hmm. um, it's what's known as a, a corporate foundation uh, in the Danish legal context. Mm -hmm. Effectively, we're a foundation, and uh, our mission is to uh, redefine play and reimagine learning, which is our uh, key tagline. Uh, so, why redefine play and reimagine learning? Redefine play because in many parts of the world, uh, in, in, in fact in many languages, in, uh, interpretations, play mm -hmm. translates into the things that is not particularly valuable that children do uh, when they have nothing better to do. So we want to redefine that in the global societal mind uh, so that the neurological evidence that has been extensively researched now is much more uh, prevalent and aware uh, amongst the global community and that is play is effectively the work of children mm -hmm. it's the way in which they're able to make sense of what's happening in the world around them it's the way in which they develop those fundamental skills right. that are so important into today's society much dialogue takes place at this point in time around what's going to be hum humanity's contribution in the post fourth industrial revolution and within that dialogue, there's a, an emerging um, conclusion that we need to focus on those skills that are uniquely human. 
right. things like collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, communication. You know, those, those foundational types of skills. And those are the very skills that research supports uh, develop through play. Uh, so that's why we want to get this redefinition taking place so that every parent, every caregiver realizes, wow, it's really important that I create the space and I facilitate play for every child around yes. the world. So we need to redefine play. We also want to reimagine learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why do we want to reimagine learning? We want to reimagine learning because in many parts of the world, learning is associated with education. We feel that there's a linear process or there's, there's this like entry point when people come into the education system and then they emerge at the end of it and then they're done. They've learnt, as it were. They're educated. And then they go forth and then they, they do their, their life thing. And we want to reimagine that process uh, because we think that's somewhat antiquated. It worked well in the post-first industrial revolution where we went from a world that had very limited educational structures it was really the privilege of the very few elites in the Mm -hmm. world that had tutors that equipped them to take on their position of leadership in society and and that was the the the, the pre-industrial revolution post-industrial revolution there was a realization that in order to fully embrace the industrialized world Everybody needs to have a certain degree of education. So therefore, education started to be brought to, to the masses. Right. And the way that was done is, is through a systematization of this tutoring process that had been established up to that point. So that translated into the classroom settings that we're very familiar with today, where you have the experts standing at the front imparting their yeah. knowledge through to the assembled classroom, whether it be five individuals or a hundred individuals, but that's the methodology that has stayed with us throughout the development of education. And we've, we've got to this acceptance that that's how people learn, mm-hmm. and that's the what education is. We're now in a world where knowledge retention and knowledge transferal can occur from an electronic device that we all carry around in our pockets. Yeah. And we have access to almost limitless amount of knowledge and importantly the need to be able to carry that around in our heads in order to be able to function is progressively diminishing because we have that access that's readily available so then it breaks the question well okay what's the purpose now of education Mm -hmm. well we believe we need to reimagine that learning process because we think what we have to do is generate creative engaged lifelong learners What we want are people that love the learning process because then they're going to be able to be continually retooled, to use the uh, language of the World Economic Forum, to be able to be adaptable, agile, be highly versatile to contribute in multiple elements of society, not just a part of a factory process where they provide a Mm -hmm. specific role throughout the whole of their life that they were trained to do up to the age of 14, 16, 18, 21, depending upon the education process that they've been through. But instead, individuals that have a thirst for learning and have a confidence 
that they're able to be able to transfer their skills into multiple vectors as society evolves and as they see the opportunities present themselves. So that's why we think we need to redefine play and reimagine learning. And that's at the central hub of the Lego Foundation. That's amazing. And so this learning through play, I hear a lot about learning through play and a lot of the experts are obviously embracing it wholeheartedly. Many people in the general audience maybe aren't so familiar with it and they think, well, either you're in school or you're playing. But, <laughs> you know, you choose one or the other. But, you know, let's get serious about this. But obviously learning through play has a role in there. How do you see your drive to put uh, to anchor learning through play as a concept that policymakers yeah. would, uh, need to embrace and take seriously and do something about how do you see things progressing? Are they moving in the right direction for you? And are you very optimistic about things? <laughs> Definitely optimistic. Great. Um, but let me give you a little bit more substance to where, where that optimism comes from. So we've translated that mission of redefining play and mm -hmm. reimagining learning into a real fo focused objective of systemically reaching children with learning through play. Okay. So that's how we define our success is whether or not we as a foundation are systemically reaching children with learning through play. And you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack uh, with that. Let, let me start with the, with the last part, which okay. is learning through play, which was, which was where the question was. Sure. I was really beneficial when I came into the uh, LEGO Foundation to have the opportunity to build onto a lot of great work that had been done by my predecessors and by the people in the organization. Mm -hmm who has spent a number of years really getting to the nitty-gritty of what is learning through play. Uh, and we'd held a number of conferences, commissioned a number of pieces of research, and we'd assimilated all of the research that had been done on this subject around the world over the years to try and crystallize down what that was. Mm -hmm. And through that process, we came up with a succinct definition that defines activities that contain five characteristics. Okay. Uh, so if the activity contains these characteristics in one shape or another, uh, then we are saying that's learning through play. And those five characteristics is, is, the, is the activity meaningful for the child? Is it iterative? Mm -hmm. Is the child actively engaged? Is the child having the opportunity to be socially interactive and is it joyful now each one of those has you know easy words to say but there's a lot of expansion below what those sure. mean so just to uh, take one as an example socially interactive does that mean that learning through play can never be done by a child by themselves no it doesn't it means that an activity can be done but then the child has an opportunity to share that, can have an opportunity to share that experience. And through that sharing experience, they learn. And that's the key. And I think there's a lot of gravitation towards the play aspect, mm -hmm. which is obviously central to what we do. Sure. But ultimately, what we're interested in is the learning process. It's the learning through play. And that's where play is so essential because it's a, a process by which children learn. And the process by which they learn are defined by those five characteristics. You know, when they're socially interactive, they're able to learn, really get that learning deeply ingrained. When it's joyful, it doesn't mean to say they're falling around laughing all the time. Sure. Joyful comes from when they've overcome a barrier 
when they've accomplished something, whether you get that that release inside, we say, oh, wow, that's great. That's the joyfulness that we're talking about. And this all these, these characteristics come together in such a way that it really embeds the learning such mm-hmm. a foundational level for mm-hmm. children and then manifests itself in later life or in the child's development at that point in time. And the manifestation comes through in five skills, again, substantiated through the research. Those five skills being creativity, emotional skills, cognitive skills, social skills, and physical skills. The very skills that will enable that adaptability and versatility that I was referring to beforehand. So I was really fortunate to come into the foundation at the time when we were publishing this, in my view, seminal piece of work Mm -hmm. that articulated the characteristics and also explained the outcomes. As a consequence of that, I've been able to then work with my organization to think, right, okay, we've done this great work now. How do we now bring this to fruition? Sure. How do we bring that out to the world and really get some momentum uh, by systemically reaching children with learning through play? So let me now unpack this systemically. What sure. do I mean by systemically? Systemically is important because there's a lot of activities that take place whether it's through philanthropic activities or whether or not it's in the uh, age sector or the academic space that uh, are fantastic interventions, Mm -hmm. but they're for a limited time frame and they impact a limited population, whether it be as a consequence of a pilot or whether because it was uh, a defined uh, area or a community which was being touched by that intervention. Then it fails to get momentum and it fails to scale so that's why we're really focusing on systemically systemically for us means that the interventions must be sustainable they must be able to continue once the lego foundation is no longer providing funding or resource Mm -hmm. into that environment so we have to think about that before we start they have to it has to be significant the interventions that we're making need to significantly change the experience of a child. If a child's already having a number of playful experiences and all we're doing is perhaps adding a, an hour to their, sure. uh, to their week, that's worthwhile, but there can be more significant interventions. That, uh, so we're really looking at what are the, the significant interventions that mm-hmm. we can make. And then it needs to be lasting. Lasting it's different from sustainable because sustainable is about whether or not you can keep going when the foundation's no longer providing things. Lasting is whether or not it can keep going when the environment around changes. When there's a new government elected, mm-hmm. will this keep going? When that classroom gets a new teacher, will this keep going? When the, the parents adopt a new piece of technology, will this thing keep going? That's where we have to think about all three elements. Sustainable, significant and lasting and that's how it comes together for systemic reaching difficult to do right it's very difficult to do but we think that in order to truly change the world with regards to how it's viewing Mm -hmm. learning and how it's viewing play we need to really set our minds on how to get that systemic intervention amazing now you guys have some incredible resources and i'll just say a couple of things but back in 2018 late 2018 a hundred million dollar grant to Sesame Workshop. A year later, 
just a couple of months back, late 2019, $100 million to the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. Tell me something, are we now looking at this $100 million grant being an annual thing? Come Christmas time 2020, is, am I going to be reading about $100 million going someplace else? I don't know. It's definitely not a programmed event. We're okay. not saying we're always going to give $100 million at around the December time. Sure. Uh, and it's always going to be a five-year grant and it's always going to be in humanitarian settings. Um, a little bit of background on both of those grants, which uh, the commonality is that they're both in the refugee settings mm -hmm. and they're both $100 million. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the components are different. We gave the first $100 million grant to Sesame Workshop in order to uh, bring early childhood development via learning through play into the Rohingya crisis, so mm -hmm. the children that were uh, touched by the Rohingya crisis. Uh, that was really stimulated... Uh, as I mentioned, everything's anchored around a systemically reaching children with learning through play. And we've been looking up until that uh, in late 2017, early 2018, into what would a learning through play translation look like in a humanitarian setting. One of the um, areas we've been working on mm -hmm. uh, was in Bangladesh in early childhood where we've been working with uh, the organization called BRAC, uh, amazing uh, organization, and uh, the largest uh, charitable organization, eight uh, charitable organization uh, in the world from an employment point of view, with over 100,000 employees. Uh, and we had been working with them on how to develop uh, low-cost early childhood development interventions, and, uh, working with them yeah. in... Um, Bangladesh and in some countries in East Africa on developing that concept. And the concept was uh, one that we uh, defined as uh, play labs. Okay. And a quick summary is that what a play lab is, it's an intervention into a uh, low-income environment where uh, our partners train uh, some uh, community members, typically in Bangladesh, these will be uh, teenage girls, we train them in how to uh, do early childhood stimulation mm -hmm. to uh, a class of, of children through learning through play methodologies. And then what we do is we work with the, the BRAC, works with the local community uh, to develop the play materials through using locally sourced materials. Right. They then provide the training to the play lab leader and then they support the, the generation of that play lab. And that has had fantastic results in Bangladesh, where we've seen significant uh, development of the children that are uh, experiencing the play labs, but also very positive cascade throughout the whole community mm -hmm. with regards to their understanding of play. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also another interesting side benefit is it really elevates the uh, play lab leader uh, within the community, uh, such that they have uh, uh, a real well-respected position, which is great for the young girls sure. that, that, that get put in that, that, that position. So we've been working with, uh, with BRAC on developing this concept leading up to uh, this work. We were doing this in the context of expanding early childhood, not necessarily in humanitarian settings. Right. 
Then in late 2017, the MacArthur Foundation mm -hmm. launched the first 100 and change, or they, they decided on the first 100 and change grant, and that was a, a concept that the MacArthur Foundation has run where they requested consortiums uh, to submit ideas as to if they received $100 million, how could they fundamentally change a problem in the world? Right. And MacArthur in 2017 awarded that first $100 million grant to Sesame Workshop and IRC to bring early childhood play-based interventions into the Syria crisis, the mm -hmm. Syria refugee crisis. So at the very time where we were uh, getting some fantastic results back from BRAC on what was happening in Bangladesh and the philanthropic world had been somewhat rocked by MacArthur sure. coming out with this $100 million grant through this competitive bidding process that they'd done, which we really respect MacArthur for that intervention um, because they ran a very rigorous process and through that refinement uh, we had a high degree of confidence that what emerged out of that was a very well thought through sure. proposition. Sure. At that point in time, the Rohingya crisis broke and we all saw in the news the terrible plight uh, of the Rohingya people uh, on the Bangladesh-Myanmar border. Uh, and that's where uh, we worked with our board uh, to say, well, we would like to make an intervention, but we would like to build on the MacArthur Foundation's intervention Great. and be a relatively fast follower by taking what they've done and reapplying it into the Rohingya crisis and being very deliberate about cross-fertilizing the learning to ensure that everybody was benefiting from research that is conducted on the intervention in the Rohingya crisis with the intervention in the Syria crisis so that then coming out of it when future events occur, we'll have some ready research available as to how to rapidly bring early childhood interventions into those settings. And by the way, it's an incredible narrative that you're following through with some of the stuff on the MacArthur side and your this collegial approach in the philanthropic world at this level isn't always the case. Yeah, and that's one of the thing, observations that uh, I think is becoming more prevalent across players in the philanthropic sector, that we've got to be more purposeful about building off each other's insights and not necessarily reinventing the wheel. And then I completely understand the concerns that that comment often generates with regards to the differences in cultural environments and settings. You can't always mm -hmm. uh, immediately replicate. Some things are transferable, some things are not. You need to listen to the community. You need to ensure you're not forcing things upon them. We completely hear that, respect all of that. And we do believe there's opportunities to build on each other and uh, not replicate always and look for unique. So lots of credibility uh, to the MacArthur Foundation for being so bold with that first uh, 100 and change grant. So 2018 you came in with 100 million. You came in with 100 million for the Rohingya crisis. That then started us thinking about um, you said more that detail. was fun. Let's let's <laughs> let's roll out another. And I should say, Sesame Workshop as well. Uh, they're an amazing partner. Mm -hmm. Somebody that 
uh, is very like-minded with us with regards to the powerful, powerful role that Platon had in the mm-hmm. child's development. And obviously they are, you know, they've celebrated their 50th year anniversary uh, just last year and have done absolutely groundbreaking work. And we have worked with them in a number of contexts in the past. So that also gave us a high degree of confidence to bring them into partnership with BRAC to work in Rohingya. So it was just perfect alignment of the stars. It was fantastic. Uh, So we're we're very, very energized. And we've already reached 50,000 children in the Rohingya uh, crisis. And we're we're very, very um, enthused by the momentum that we're getting there. Um, That accelerated to a certain degree Mm -hmm. uh, our thinking with regards to bringing learning through play into humanitarian settings. But we're focused on zero to 11 years of age. So the uh, the early years intervention uh, that we had through the, the work with the Rohingyas, with the Refugee Playful Beginnings, mm-hmm. uh, we felt that, okay, we, we need to quickly think through how do we start that similar learning process in the next age span. Uh, which is also, you know, equally important for right. us uh, as we go from pre-primary school into primary school. How do we help children in refugee settings? Because the data is so strong with regards to play-based methodologies and learning through play being a fantastic way in which children, very early children, can deal with toxic stress and older children can deal with trauma. So what we wanted to do is help get started uh, on that thought mm-hmm. process. So we, mm-hmm. we did a, a, a scan of the humanitarian settings around the world uh, to think through where we can start that process. And East Africa really popped out to us because it's been such a protracted yeah. area of refugee uh, crises and to a certain degree forgotten mm-hmm. in many instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we wanted to uh, work in East Africa and find uh, a consortium uh, which could help us uh, start that process for the pre-primary uh, um, um, primary years. So we took a different approach this time uh, because we didn't have the, the, the front running of mm-hmm. MacArthur that we could build upon. So what we did is, uh, is we put out a request for a proposal amongst a selected group of institutions that had proven track records of working in East Africa okay. in refugee settings. Right. And the request for a proposal was to say, we want to bring learning through play into East African refugee settings. And importantly, as in the case of the Rohingya intervention, we want the recipients to be committed to developing sustainable solutions that will be able to be reapplied in the future and also work very actively with the host governments mm-hmm. to ensure that it has the, they have their full support in the implementations so that hold, hopefully we can also get an influence of those host governments sure. with regards to how they should be approaching the development of children in the pre-primary and primary uh, age. On the back of that, we had some fantastic submissions. And one of the tough things about request for proposal processes is that you know all of the participants are gonna be going through a lot of work sure. to put their best foot forward and thinking. And 
that is a drain on very precious resources. So it's always a little bit tough just to select one, but we did select one in the context of the, the consortium submitted by uh, the IRC because it was such a strong proposition and really um, checked all the boxes for us in terms of the components that we were looking for. Uh, so we're very excited to have just announced that at the first Global Refugee Forum mm-hmm. in Geneva in December. And we're hopeful, again, that the other philanthropic organizations, uh, governments that provide aid, will be able to utilize that initiative as a means to also influence and shape their interventions that they'll be making in their pre-primary and primary school years. And that $100 million grant uh, to the IRC which is, is I, I believe it's uh, David Milliband, right? Who's the uh, the CEO? Yeah, he's CEO of IRC, uh, yeah. but it's a consortium led by IRC. So you have um, Plan International, Plan International, War Child, uh, Umbongo, who is a, an organisation that's based in East Africa, mm-hmm. uh, IPA, and BIT okay. uh, are the organisations. So they'll provide the the research, the evidence, the behavioural science as well as the uh, Mbungo providing the multimedia uh, distribution and then World Child and Plan also bringing unique contributions through things like their me- mental health insight uh, and uh, Plan International has also worked in the, in the area for a long period of time could bring their expertise into the equation. Plus also working closely with the governments of Ethiopia, yes, Uganda. exactly. Possibly yes. a third country. Possibly already. a third country as well, yes. And so you look remarkably refreshed for someone who's actually running a pretty complex operation. Yeah, well I come from a consumer products background so I have a lot of good products <laughs> that I still use to well, keep that, me look refreshed. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that. So um, how, did, how did you land where you are today. So you're the CEO of the Lego Foundation, but mm-hmm. you're not new to Lego as a group, as a family. No. Tell us a little bit about your trajectory, how you found yourself here, what drove you here? Because you made a shift also from the corporate world, from finance to um, to philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. yeah yes, it, it's been a, an interesting road, but it's been a, a, a great journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started off as an engineer and was very, very passionate uh, about my uh, my field of uh, research, uh, which at the time was newfangled and and nobody had ever heard of computer aided design, and um, so yeah. I was um, uh, in this weird uh, subsector, and I was very energized to go out and create my own company. I'm uh-huh. uh, very excited about that, uh, but had absolutely no business experience uh, and no financial backing. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, it, it, it didn't really come to much. So I decided, okay, I need to go and get some business credibility that will enable me to start my own company. So right. then I went off at that point in time because I didn't, uh, couldn't afford to do an MBA. I went into chartered accountancy uh, because back back then, uh, previous century, uh, that was a good way when you were in drilling <laughs> <laughs> in the UK. You know, that was the way in which you you got the, your business training and. Um, <laughs> And actually found that uh, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I qualified, uh, but then was still passionate about going off and starting my own company. So I, I wanted to get some large corporate experience that right. would um, educate me uh, as to how I should run my own company. Um, and back in the in those days, it was uh, a, a tough time in the part of the UK where I lived. Okay, I lived in the northeast of England. 
which had been savaged uh, by some of the reforms that have been put through uh, in, the, in the government and a lot of the industries have been shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the only companies that existed in Newcastle at that point in time where you could get big company experience was a company called Procter & Gamble. Right. Um, Little company. Uh, yeah, small company. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I applied and was fortunate enough to get accepted into, uh, uh, into their finance organization. Uh, and 22 years later, I was uh, I was still there, uh-huh. um, and um, that was a fascinating journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started in finance, but got into all sorts of things sure. and uh, general management and, and general leadership. Uh, but it taught me a huge amount, uh, and because I continued to learn, I continued to stay there. Uh, and uh, had a had a great ride. Lived in many countries around the world. Worked in just about every part of right. the world through that process. Um, but what it also afforded me uh, was the opportunity to have multiple elements towards my life. Mm-hmm. So I had a very active um, participation in numerous uh, aid and charitable ventures. Uh, was able to help uh, set up an organization that looked at making uh, lasting interventions in the lives of homeless children in uh, East Africa. We started in Uganda um, and that was a a fantastic opportunity uh, for me. It was an organization that came onto an organization called Retrack. Mm -hmm. They've subsequently been uh, taken over by a larger charitable organization, but their mission uh, continues. Uh, but that really gave me some great exposure. I also uh, was on the board of an organization called Matthew 25 Ministries, okay. which does uh, fantastic humanitarian interventions uh, through the recycling of residual products uh, that they take over from corporations and then they reprocess into humanitarian environments. Uh, and also have um, had the opportunity, as have my children, uh, to work with an organization called Back to Back, mm-hmm. uh, which also work in the lives of children, and particularly traumatized children, and they do some fantastic work uh, in Mexico and Haiti and now uh, extensively around the world. So um, I had the opportunity to pursue that. And then there was a life intervention that occurred. Uh, yeah. these, these things happen. And uh, as a consequence of uh, uh, an event, uh, uh, a tragic event in my uh, family where my brother-in-law died uh, at a relatively young age, um, uh, that led my wife and I to the conclusion that we needed to move back to the UK, our original mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. We've been out living outside the UK for 20 years up in that point. Right. Um, but there was no family left uh, to uh, support my mother-in-law. Uh, and we felt that we needed to uh, make the decision to go back to the UK. Uh, so that, where that was the catalyst that uh, led me to leave Procter and Gamble mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, so I was looking for a new role back in the UK so that we could resettle the family. And my sure. wife had already gone back, and we'd made that commitment. Uh, and I was in the final throes of getting a job in the UK when uh, somebody called me up and said. Oh, you should really go and have a chat with the people at the Lego Group. Excellent. Um, and I said, well, it doesn't really work because you know, they're based in Denmark. 
I need to live in the UK. And they said, well, yeah, we think you should go and have a chat with them anyway. So I went and had a chat with uh, uh, the, the CEO, the then CEO, Jörn mm-hmm. Wickenstorp, uh, and was just incredibly inspired by what he was looking to do with the Lego Group at that point in time. Uh, the leadership approach that he was bringing the, uh, throughout the whole of the organization, his ambition from a globalization perspective, both with regards to Lego products, but also for the Lego Group's organization. Mm-hmm. And really was uh, inspired to uh, really be part of that. And then I had the opportunity to meet the third generation uh, owner, uh, Kelka uh, Christiansen, uh, and speak to him and also hear about his ownership philosophy and his aspirations as well. And through much of that interview, we had the opportunity to talk about the um, Lego Foundation. Right. And I so can from rem- the outset, the I Lego can re- Foundation. I can remember uh, very vividly uh, during that interview saying to him that, you know, I'm... Saying, yes, honored. I'll take this job, but I'm actually really interested in the other That's one. exactly what I said. Is that right? I said, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I can understand and I'm, I'm, I think I have some skills that I can contribute into the EVP position you're recruiting for in the Lego group, but I want to be very open. I'd really like to uh, run the foundation. And then, yeah, as fate would have it, um, it came uh, four and a half years in the Lego group, had an amazing time, fantastic journey, but it was the right time for me to, to move on at that point. And it just so happens that at that point they were recruiting for the head of the the foundation so I was able to step into that position and after nearly three years it's just been a fantastic journey and uh, an amazing combination of my philanthropic passions uh, with my uh, professional career. Well you're a very very lucky man. I am. I think that's that's exactly the case. And what's it like working with the family uh, that created Lego? It must be quite quite good having those family members involved in the activities of the organization, right? Because they take it personally, right? They Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, blessed to have uh, three uh, of the owner family members on my board of directors for the Lego Foundation. And as you say, they, they bring um, both the, the, the core passion uh, of the the owner family, mm-hmm. but also just the inspiration and the um, desire to change the world for good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which really is central to the Lego idea, and they embody that in what they bring into the foundation. So I just find myself really blessed uh, to be in that fortunate opportunity to have the proximity to them. Uh, to sure. work with me and the members of the Lego Foundation to to bring redefining play and reimagining learning to life. Are all the Lego offices like this one? Because this one, if our listeners could see what it looks like, I think I'm in Legoland. <laughs> I think I could let my two girls run loose here and they would never want to leave this building. And I remember uh, meeting some of your colleagues way back when, many years ago, and their business cards were actually these little Lego yeah, that's right. uh, toys. Yeah, little yeah. Lego people. Yeah, minifigures. Minifigures. Yeah, yeah. With their, with their sculptured <laughs> specifically in the image of the individual. Yeah. That, Which yeah, I remember I kept, cool. and I kept, I, I, I had collected two or three quote-unquote business cards, these minifigures. <laughs> 
at the time, and, and when I came back to my office, I remember I put, a, put those minifigures on top of my desktop, and I kept them there. And people in my office were always walking around like, what is that? You know, so it was a very good talking point, but this is just right here. So tell me a little bit about a key takeaway. If, if uh, there's one key takeaway that you want people to keep in mind, what would that be? Uh, and it's a um, difficult one. It is a difficult one. There's so many things that you I'd could like choose to keep to talk about. Well, so. Yeah, I may choose two. Well, one, given that it's very top of mind on the back of the subject we talked about with regards to the humanitarian uh, interventions that we've made over the course of the last, say, 13 months, mm-hmm. I've had the, the privilege as a consequence of those interventions to get to work alongside and discuss uh, with many of the, the people that are at the forefront of delivering uh, mm-hmm. support to displaced individuals. Yeah. 70 million displaced individuals around the world, of which 50% of them roughly uh, are children. Uh, so it is a massive um, factor of humanity at this point in time for us to come to terms with. One takeaway that, that I'm getting is that no individual chooses to be displaced. They don't choose to be a refugee. Mm-hmm. And yet a lot of the narrative, unfortunately, that surrounds refugees and displaced individuals is one of negativity towards the individuals that are displaced. And I just think that all of us that work in the aid sector need to ensure that we are alongside the the, the terrible plight that these people often find themselves, also be presenting to the wider society that there is hope and there can be positivity out of this Mm -hmm. if society is more receptive to their fellow human beings. So trying to talk about that, the situation in in, uh, a positive light and, and changing the narrative slightly to incorporate the opportunities if we approach, uh, and, and not we in this context, I'm talking about all of humanity, not the people that work in the humanitarian space, but the, the full society looks in more with a more of a lens of embrace. Uh, now I'm sure a lot of people hearing that would say, well, there's naivete uh, within that. Uh, and I understand the political complexities uh, mm-hmm. that are associated with many of these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also believe in the power of people and the resilience and their ability to contribute into the future world if they're given the opportunities. Uh, So uh, I really feel that if we can provide those opportunities, uh, whether that be through entrepreneurship uh, or whether it be uh, as what we're doing, bring learning through play to help children deal with their circumstance and then go on Mm -hmm. to be vibrant, active, creative, engaged, lifelong learners in the future. Uh, I just think there's a, there's a real positive opportunity there. So that would be one. The, the second one that, uh, that, uh, that we're bringing is just on the, on the background of, of being somewhat of an outsider into the philanthropic and, and aid space that is that uh, I think there's a wonderful richness that can come if we're able to break down our silos mm-hmm. and uh, embrace the opportunities that, that, that present themselves to bring our expertise and knowledge in a collective way. 
such that we can draw on the strengths of the private sector, we can draw on the strengths of the aid sector, we can draw on the strengths of philanthropic, we can draw on the strengths of academia. And none of us believe that any one silo has the best solution, but that by coming together, we can optimize and create something new that will have that systemic impact that ultimately we, we seek. So I'm, I'm a strong believer that you can learn in every circumstances and learn from every individual. Uh, so I would encourage us all as we, we get into this melting pot of trying to solve some of the biggest issues of the world, if we can do it in a non-siloed way uh, and come at it with an open, curious mind that we advocate and espouse our children to have through learning through play. That's excellent. Look, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Really great hearing your story as well, your personal story, how you got into this uh, space. And I'm glad you finally persevered and got into that leadership role at the Lego Foundation. You're doing some amazing stuff. Thank you very much. I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed meeting you and I've enjoyed being in these offices. (laughs) And I look forward to our next conversation and to our subscribers and to our listeners. Please share this podcast and, uh, and spread the word. And learning through play does matter. And I speak as a parent of two young children. And now you've heard it through the, through the words of the CEO of the Lego Foundation. Thank you all very much. John, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.